Hi, friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. We're live on this lovely cool day. Cool Monday. We are not overheating today. (laughs) I'm in a sweater and little leggings and like some little slippers. I love it. This is my this is my jam right here. This podcast intro has just turned into a weather update and how we feel about it. Again, I think we talked about this early on, so any new listeners might not know this, but as a child, I got up every morning and I would turn on my TV and I would just watch the weather network while I got ready. I was like so paranoid of not being prepared for the day. You're so that the weather Oh god. My mom used to go to work and her colleagues would be like, What did Katie say the weather's doing today? The only days I ever cared about the weather network channel anything was a potential snow day. Because back in the day there was no internet to go check if the school was radio or, or not. The TV. It was like the radio or the little bar on the bottom of the news on the TV that was like, all oh, schools closed for snow. And then you'd be or so Or when you're excited. waiting for your school district and you're like, that's not it. Come on. Big money, mm-hmm. big money, big money. 79. Yes. The only time I have literally ever cared about the Weather Network in my life. What was your so. school district? 69. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my cousin works in my old school district now, and recently I was in a group chat with her and another girl for a bridal party that we were in together, and um, the other girl that we were in the bridal party with was like, is school district 69 a real thing? Like, do you actually work there, or are you punking me? And I was like, nope, it's a real thing. I grew up in that district, so yeah. Oh, it's real, baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my district, but... Wow, we're 10 districts apart. 10 full districts. That's actually pretty wild considering we don't live that Like, do they go in 10s? Is that why? No, because there's school district 68 is Nanaimo, which is why... there's still, like, Shemines, Ladysmith, Nanaimo. There's not 10. Cassidy. But there's all those little neighborhoods, and I guess they each have their own. So, yeah, there probably is 10 between us. That's wild. Dang. Hmm. Tell us your weird thing about your school district. I'm kidding. Yeah. We are not turning into that. We're not. Welcome back, though. Part four, (laughs) finale episode of the Kingston Penitentiary Riot. I was just telling Katie that this episode, it probably won't be that much shorter, per se, but it really is kind of like the little bow that's going to wrap up everything that we've talked about. We're not going to go too far past like a year or two after the riot if you know what i mean like we're not going to go 10 years down the line what changes have occurred because we've kind of talked about all those things throughout like the entirety of the podcast um here and there so but yeah we're gonna wrap it up today uh and then we can get back to our regularly scheduled programming i have a missing persons case coming for us um but yeah let's let's wrap this up and and get it get it done if you will Will do. If you see me looking down every once in a while, it's because I'm just double-checking Fleck, which is the missing cat page, trying to see if anyone will speak up for this poor little cat I found yesterday, because he's too sweet. Yeah, Katie has, like, a personal cat rescue at her house, um, so. Yeah. It happens. 
It's a it slippery happens. slope, people. I say it happens frequently. I was like, oh, you you got a stray cat. You're like, oh, we have so many here right now. Like, what? Well, we brought in two females. They both they were sisters. They ended up being both pregnant and had six kittens each. So there's at your house twelve kittens plus the two moms in their just their own bedroom. Yeah, but the kittens are now like a couple weeks old and they're like running around, but they're tiny still. And oh fuck, it's a, the biggest serotonin boost going in there. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. I know. I should rescue I wish kittens. you would foster this cat I just found, though. I want someone to foster me. So nice. I would foster a to cat be if I wasn't worried that my chihuahua <laughs> would try and fight it and lose. Because she will lose. Yeah. Even if the cat is just trying to, like... Get her Say away! Hi. No, like get her like if like, she fuck tries off to and, like, if she tries to attack a cat and it doesn't try to attack her back, it literally just tries to get her away from it. She mm. will get injured. So this has happened before, and she ended up with a full cat scratch on her face, and the cat was literally just trying to be like, "Please leave me alone." Do you remember um, when there was like that mystery wound? <laughs> Mystery like, wound, we don't have like to get into I... it, but remember when there was that little spot of blood and you're like, who hurt themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still, that's still... We can get it. into it. I'm pretty sure she fell out of the bed. Oh, I didn't have to. I just mean it's still in my mind. That oh, was yeah. All. It also lives rent-free in my mind. It was traumatic. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But she was fine, and I couldn't find an actual wound anywhere on her, so... I don't really know what happened I think there. we've all had that instance, though, where we find something and we immediately in our head think our pet is injured. And then we go find the pet and we're like, what's wrong? Are you okay? Ah, yep, looking over them head to toe. Because I've definitely mm-hmm. done it. I thought a it's squished a- raspberry on my floor was blood once. It's and I freaked out. It's life when your dog is less than four pounds. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. I Let couldn't do it. You. She's pretty good. Like, her. I bring her around big dogs and stuff and she's fine. Like good she's so funny she's so low maintenance she just comes with a different set of needs yeah she like just a big needs dog. like a safety detail mm-hmm. otherwise she's very easygoing. yeah she's pretty smart she listens like she can stay with your parents if need be and she's not like a nightmare like she's, she's just adaptable you're not gonna leave her alone in a big field where she could get like scooped up by an eagle these are yeah. the kinds of things you're worried about when your dog's less than four pounds. You just put a balloon on her in tall grass. <laughs> Legit. Like. Anyways. Well, we've I think almost... we beat our record if we cut off now. We're starting before seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the business, you know the business. If you business. don't already, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, at Podcast by Proxy. Leave a five-star rating and review wherever you're listening if you haven't already. Spotify and win Apple. Win my free are... piece of merch. I was going to say, you can win a t-shirt. Woo-hoo! I've seen a couple submissions come through over the last few episodes. You have six or seven days left to enter that giveaway. So leave a five-star rating review on Spotify or Apple. Screenshot your review and send it to us. Um, you will and be... I will say, I have decided that for the winner, once you your name is drawn, I will reach out to you and you can actually choose between like a hoodie or a t-shirt or one other thing, but I'm not saying yet because I've been trying a few other things and I want to give yeah, you options. We'll give you a size choice. Like exactly. We Katie's custom making this, so we yeah. can do whatever we want with it, essentially. Um, oh, hell yes. But yeah, send us the review and if you want some stickers, send us your address as well and then we have it to send you your merch Boom. if you win. 
Um, but that's the business. So we can get right into it. Uh, when we finished off last episode, the riot had really just come to an end. Um, Barry McKenzie was finally, uh, the inmate was finally able to make a deal with the administration and 60 inmates for every one guard hostage were released um, until the last inmate, which was Barry McKenzie. So kind of going to talk about aftermath today. In total, the riot lasted 96 hours. Detective Earl McCullough arrived on scene at Kingston Penn after the riot had concluded. So he was with the Kingston police and he said that the place was a complete disaster and that everything that was smashable was smashed. So they had to go in and really see what the damage was. Um, They were looking for potentially anybody that had been left behind, whether they were injured or whatever that looked like to see if there was anybody left. Um, Which again, do they not have like a head count or an attendance list? It it always sounds like they're just going in to see what's there and it's like... And they are. They're going in to just like see the wreckage and see what's left over and it sounds like if they did have a head count, they knew people were missing. And they were expecting to go in and find something. Okay. Um, They basically said, like, if the inmates had considered the penitentiary unlivable before, it certainly was now. Well, yeah, it sounds like if it wasn't attached to the wall, it was thrown around. And even if it was attached to the wall, it was probably damaged or smashed. Like, I. Yeah. Yeah. There had been unconfirmed reports of multiple murders occurring inside the dome and rumors that guards had seen body parts through the windows. The Frontenac County coroner was called in and by late Sunday afternoon, over a dozen military ambulances were seen transporting seriously injured inmates to the Canadian Forces Hospital in Berryfield. Inmate inmate number 6709, Bertrand Robert, who, if you remember, was the inmate accused of burning his five children. Yeah. He was in serious condition at Kingston General Hospital. Um, Bertrand Robert had actually previously been stabbed in the chest in the wreck yard on August the 2nd, 1970. And a month later, he applied for a transfer to a penitentiary in BC, stating that he feared for his life. However, his transfer was denied. Which I think if anywhere knew what he had done he would fear for his life so i don't necessarily feel like the denial was them being like screw you buddy i think they were just like it's not something that moving him is gonna fix i think though that transferring him to a penitentiary in bc and say like keeping all of his paperwork a secret you could potentially keep his crimes a little bit more under the wraps than in Ontario where so. everybody like already knows and the news spreads between the centuries. Um, but yeah. anyways, his transfer was denied. And so he is now in serious condition at the hospital. Okay. The investigators who were brought in began making their way through the destruction inside the penitentiary. Um, They were looking for victims, but they had to wade through wreckage that was, like, over six feet high in some places. Like, it was all just thrown and stacked on top of each other. And Well, I mean, we've all seen, like, some type of horror movie where they stack, like, all these mattresses and bed frames and shit just to 
make an obstacle, essentially. So that's exactly what I'm picturing. Investigators worked through the night using portable lights to, to search for any sign of anybody left inside the building. Um, as they began making their way toward 1D, where the undesirables had been felled, held, felled. Holy, <laughs> holy crap. As investigators began making their way toward cell block 1D, where the undesirables had been held, um, and as they were walking down a dark passageway, the detectives spotted something sticking out of an air duct. As they moved closer, they realized it was a human leg attached to a body, and it looked as though somebody had, like, thrown it in there to try to hide it. As they pulled the body out, they noted that the man's hands were tied behind his back with strips of blood-soaked cloth. His face was unrecognizable and the side of his head was fully caved in. So was this one of the men that were tied to the chairs, they're assuming, then? Yes. Or the undesirables? Okay. The body was covered in slash marks and had a huge, deep cut along the full length of his upper right thigh. Oh, God. Yeah. Investigators had found the body of inmate number 9370, who was Brian Enser. Brian, if you remember... Didn't we talked um, about him last episode, yeah. Yes. Brian um, was initially attacked during the riots where another inmate had tried to throw him over the railing, um, remember? And he was, like, holding on to the bar so tight. They were, like, biting and kicking at his fingers, and he still refused to let go. Oh, my God. So he had obviously survived the first attack on his life during the riot, but had not been as lucky during this circle attack. If you remember from part two, Brian Enser was a sex offender who had refused to be locked in protective custody at Kingston Penn, but once the riot started, he was put there for his own protection. Understandable, but unfortunately, I think it made him a sitting duck as well. Yeah. So, recognizing that the investigation into the riots had now officially turned into a murder investigation... A group of investigators led by Bill Hackett were brought in to investigate the murder of Brian Enser. Bertrand Robert died after one month in Kingston General Hospital, and his death was also considered to be a murder. So this is now a double inver- a double murder investigation as well as a riot investigation. Police investigators basically moved their offices to Millhaven Institution for months where they conducted 512 interviews with Kingston inmates and examined the bits of scene left behind. In total, six detectives worked in teams of two interviewing all of the inmates that were willing to talk to them. Okay. It was a huge investigation. I could imagine. I don't think anything like this would be a minimal no. Oh. All day on... Imagine seeing a body sticking out of, like, a vent. It's yeah, just, just so like, a leg. Up. I know. Yeah. Especially when you're walking through there knowing full well that there's a good chance you'll find that, but, like, you're kind of hoping you don't, you know? And, like, to see that, I can't imagine that, like, sinking feeling. I imagine of, that's, like, like there any, it is. like, search party of any kind. Sure. Like, yeah. you go out knowing that you could see something like that but there's a good chance that you won't find anything like most searches but unfortunately you're one of the groups that did find something yeah 
So all day on Sunday, April 18th, 1971, the inmates waited for their names to be called so they could board a bus to their new facility. All of the prisoners were initially moved to Millhaven, even though it was still under construction and not fully staffed. Inmates would eventually be moved to Collins Bay, Millhaven, Joyceville, and Warkworth institutions. Okay. Most of the freed inmates were super relieved the riot was over. Um, a lot of them recognized that was it was really only a matter of time before the military was going to storm the do- dome and many of them would have been killed. So they were just like, yeah. thank fucking God. Uh, as they originally feared, however, the inmates began reporting to the Citizens Committee upon their arrival to Millhaven that several of the guards beat them with their nightsticks and many inmates wound up in the hospital. The ringleaders of the riot were targeted specifically and they were told that Billy Knight was one of the inmates included in these beatings and had ended up in Kingston General Hospital with a fractured skull. Jesus Christ. Yeah, their fears about Millhaven had certainly not been unwarranted and I think it was obviously even worse because of the riot. Um, Like they were already scared that they were going to get transferred to Millhaven and get treated poorly um so it certainly wasn't an unwarranted fear no not at all yeah though the citizens committee was pretty furious about this because they had kind of promised the inmates that they would not be physically abused when they were transferred that was part of the deal the part of getting them to be released it's like a gentle Um, transfer yeah and so they fought for an extent Uh, an investigation into these beatings an extensive investigation was done and 11 guards in total were charged with assault on june 3rd 1971 okay well i'm actually surprised something was done and charges were laid to be honest yeah i i was kind of surprised too um i mean i was not surprised to find out that all of the guards were eventually acquitted of all their charges um (laughs) But so to back it up a little bit, because the guards now remember the guards and the inmates should have all been considered innocent until proven guilty. But the guards were considered innocent until proven guilty and they were still all working at the institutions like at the penitentiary. So all of the guards who were charged were not named publicly for their own protection. Hmm. In total, 24 counts of assault causing bodily harm and common assault for uh, some of the guards were laid. All of the guards pleaded not guilty. The preliminary hearing for the guards involved um, in assaulting the inmates transferred from Kingston Pen began on July 19th, 1971, and it lasted for three days. After hearing 20 witnesses, eight Millhaven guards were committed to stand trial on 17 of the 25 charges. The judge said that there was no evidence to connect the other guards to the allegations against them. Um, The remaining eight guards elected to stand trial by judge and jury and were released on bail. These charges, or sorry, these trials were held in 1971, December, and January 1972, and all eight guards were acquitted of all charges. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, With respect to this case, Billy Knight sued the federal government for $125,000. 
$5,000 for injuries he sustained during the attack by the Millhaven guards. Um, and he ended up winning $3,500 in the case. A decent amount of money in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, not anywhere close to the 125K nope. he was asking for. Not However, <laughs> he won something, and I think that that is a victory in itself for him. Agreed. <laughs> no. Both Brian Enser and Robert Bertrand had sustained severe head injuries during the circle attack in the dome that led to their deaths. According to their autopsy reports, Brian Enser's most notable injury was the 25-centimeter gash in his leg that had had salt poured into it continuously. Um, his official cause of death, however, was blunt force trauma with a hammer or an iron bar causing his skull to be crushed. Yeah. Uh, okay. Brian had been dead for at least 12 hours before he was found. He was 26 years old. Detective McCulloch said, quote, It was a vicious, terrible, long number of hours of brutal attacks on these people. They were beaten and they suffered badly, the people that were injured. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. That's horrendous. In total, investigators charged 13 inmates with the non-capital murders of Brian Enser and Bertrand Robert. Among the 13 was Dave Shepley, Brian Bocage, and Robbie Robidoux, who, if you remember, were instrumental in the attack on the undesirables on the last day of the riot. Mm -hmm. On June 4th, 1971, Judge P.E.D. read the official charges and the names of the inmates involved, before announcing the seven inmates who would be charged with kidnapping the guards during the riot. Among them, Billy Knight, Charles Saunders, and Alan Lafreniere. An inmate by the name of Brian Dodge was the only one charged with both murder and kidnapping. So the murder charges for the, yeah. the murder of the two inmates and the charges for kidnapping the guards were both separate there were separate charges okay. separate trials so there was only one inmate in the entire thing that was ended up being charged in both of the instances and that was brian dodge because remember somebody like billy now, knight saying that like some people got charged with kidnapping some got charged with the murder but he's the only yes. one to get charged with both okay i thought you were saying yes. he was the only one to fall under the kidnapping category that's why my face went kind of like no, no, no. He okay, was the only sense. one charged with both. Because remember, somebody like Billy Knight, for example, would have been charged with kidnapping, but was a huge um, advocate for not harming the guards. No violence. No violence yeah. against the guards and no violence against the inmates. So there was some that were charged with kidnapping and inciting the riot, but they weren't involved with the murder of these two inmates. They had nothing to do with these okay. circle attacks. They were actively trying to prevent violence against anybody from occurring. Um, so yeah, Brian Dodge is the only inmate that was charged in both cases. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. Inmate Charles Saunders, who was part of the original inmate committee, stood up to ask the judge why the names of the Millhaven guards charged with assaulting the inmates were not being released to the public prior to their court appearance when the names of all of the inmates charged had been released to the press days before their court appearance. Um, now, remember, inmates are 
equally at risk of harm if it's found out that they've committed these kinds of offenses behind bars from other certain types of inmates or retribution from other guards. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a potential of of being able to keep them a little bit more safe by keeping their names a secret in these cases, similar to the guards. Um, But, of course, inmates are not valued. Rarely get the same luxury. Citizens. Yes. And, like, people who are working for the government. Mm -hmm. Um, The judge basically said, once the information is filed with the court, it becomes a public record. So, like, the inmates just never really got an answer to that question. That's bullshit, but okay. The quietest of the group that day was Dave Shepley. It was reported that Dave Shepley had not spoken to anyone since April when the riot ended. He had stayed silent throughout the hearing, and after having surgery to repair his broken jaw, he had actually requested solitary confinement after arriving at Millhaven. He told them he felt he had an unhealthy control over the other inmates. (laughs) Which I'm like, okay. Okay, buddy. Dave Shepley had been seen by the prison psychologist, and even though it was deemed he suffered from a, quote, major psychiatric disability, which could be considered both psychotic and neurotic, he was deemed mentally capable under Section 14 of the Criminal Code as fit to stand trial. That's okay. <laughs> those, th- th- those things in the sentence together don't really make sense. Like, they're saying he has these severe issues, but yet they're going to let him stand up in trial and cost himself his life, potentially. Yeah, like a major psychiatric disability, which considers him both psychotic and neurotic, but is deemed mentally fit to stand trial. Like what? And we've seen people say, like, they're deemed too neurotic to be in trial. Like, so he's getting two of these. And they're like, "Mm, he's fine. Five of the inmates charged with kidnapping the six guards pled guilty to a lesser charge of forcible seizure. The maximum sentence for kidnapping was life in prison, while forcible seizure was only five years. What? Yeah. Charles Saunders said his client joined in to seize the guards as a last resort to bring attention to the conditions the inmates were living under at Kingston. Um... Mm. Yeah, so Billy Knight had no plans to change his plea, and so he was the only one of the six that pled not guilty. Um, he, It was said that he was, quote, willing to take his chance with a ju- judge and jury. I think he wanted to tell his story in a dramatic For sure. courtroom. Um, he was absolutely not taking a plea because then he wouldn't get to talk about why he incited himself. the riot. Right. On August 27, 1971, all five were sentenced to three years in jail for forcible seizure. Forcible seizure just sounds like the dumbest charge. And like three years? Well, that's what I mean. Like, uh, what is the point? Like, you put those guards in severe danger by doing that. They could have been killed. And many of them were... Almost were. Like, like Terry Decker, for example, was physically harmed. He, like, had ligaments torn in his hand. He... It comes out later that when they sucker punched him, when the first... And the first blow when the riot started, he... His eye hemorrhaged. Like, three years in jail? Um, And it was... 
they did say it was had to be consecutive. So they had to finish out their remaining sentences. So it was basically three years tacked onto the So he back had three years sentences. added to his existing sentence. Exactly. They weren't concurrent. Huh. Okay. Those five anyways. Wonder how long they all had left. Yeah, probably varying. Because I wonder if then the time they had left was quite high that they were like, screw it, we're just going to put three years on. Like yeah, they're not maybe. getting out anytime soon anyway. I think that they just wanted to take the guilty pleas mm-hmm. and not go through with the trial for all of them. I mean, if you get a guilty plea, often it's accepted. So I'm sure those yeah. deals were, you know, worked <clears throat> out between the lawyer and the crown. And it's just crazy to me that they only got three years, but. Me too. I agree. The preliminary hearing for Billy Knight began shortly after the other inmates had entered their guilty pleas. Terry Decker was the first witness called to the stand. He testified and told the court how on the night of April 14th at around 10.30 p.m. he was attacked by Billy Knight and Charles Saunders. Um, So this is when he testifies to how, like, Billy Knight sucker punched him and then Charles Saunders, like, basically hit him while he was on the ground and punched him in the face and hemorrhaged his eye. Mm -hmm. After his testimony, Terry Decker was asked to point out the accused Billy Knight in the courtroom, but he was unable to do so. He was unable to point out Billy in the courtroom. Billy had intentionally changed his appearance quite drastically His hair was, like, grown and worn longer um, and, like, brushed low across his forehead. He was tanned. He had a mustache and, like, black-rimmed glasses that he actually stole from another inmate. Like, another inmate was like, where are my glasses? I can't see without them. Meanwhile, he's like, I'm going to look so smart in court with these on. Billy stole them. Um, he was also seated in the prisoner's box behind his attorney in the courtroom. And he was like intentionally like looking down and just doodling on a legal pad, like trying to look inconspicuous. And so he did not point him out. Um, so they're like, are you sure? Like scan the room. Are you sure you don't see him? And he's like, no, I don't see him. After Terry Decker leaves the courtroom, um, Billy is moved from where he was sitting behind his lawyer to the counsel table beside his lawyer because one of the people on the prosecution side basically said it was, like, unfair and that he was hiding. So they move him. Yeah. He continues to look down at a legal pad and doodle. He's just sitting there. He's trying not to look up, you know. So three Mm -hmm. of the other guards are called in to testify. William Babcock, who was not a hostage guard, but he was there, remember, in, like, the gym. Okay, yes. Douglas Dale and Joseph Vallier. All three of these guards, after their testimony, were asked to point out the accused in the courtroom and were unable to do so. What the hell? All of them. So without positive identification from the Crown's four key witnesses, Judge Donald Graham felt he had no choice but to dismiss the charges against Billy. I kind of see why. And he's acquitted. That's fucked. Mm -hmm. And like the, yeah, the prosecution was very unhappy. They Um, like put forth a big thing 
uh, that basically the government should relook at the case and that he was like. Well, why hiding. couldn't they have identified the people? Like, had photos of them at the time as well and say, can you identify who at the time attacked you? Because right. I think it is a little unfair that not only has Terry Decker, like, had essentially a horrible head injury, but, like, what if he doesn't put the pieces together like the guards didn't either or anyone that this man has changed his look? When he doesn't look how he looked when they were working with him all the time. Like, his high, That's what I mean. Like, hair thing was gone like he yeah he completely changed his appearance so that's fine there was a huge uproar um yeah they were asked to relook at it they didn't as far as i know he was just acquitted billy knight never went to trial again for that wow when he returned back to Collins Bay, guards at the prison, like, seized his razor to prevent him from changing his appearance again because they wanted to photograph him how he looked now. Um, okay. I get how, that. So that night, he breaks a piece of glass from his cell window, gives himself a fresh shave, and looks completely different the next day when he sits down in front of a camera. What the fuck? Yeah. He had, like... His hair was, like, combed straight back. He had no mustache. He, like, looked different again. I mean, I get that they tried to stop him from doing it, but, like, why are they letting this happen? Photograph him that day. <laughs> Fuck. Like, take so, daily yeah. photos of him if you have to. Like, yeah. God. The preliminary hearing for the 13 inmates charged with the murder of Brian Enser and Bertrand Robert began on July 13, 1971. Chief Judge Arthur Otto Klein was the presiding judge and Crown Attorney John Sampson was in charge of presenting evidence to the court that was sufficient enough to move forward with a murder trial. It was confirmed at the preliminary hearing that a number of inmates would be called as witnesses during the hearing, and that those who would testify against the other inmates were sent to Quinty Regional Jail in Napanee for their protection while awaiting trial. Because these are now all considered, like, rats or well, yeah. stool pigeons, as they were calling them in there. Stool pigeons. Yeah, remember we were stoolies? Yeah. <laughs> um, they're all rats now. Their lives are now in danger in a federal penitentiary yeah. where people know that they're going to actively testify against other inmates. So... They are moved to a provincial facility. Before the proceedings began, the judge issued a publication ban on any evidence in the names of the witnesses. No press would be allowed in the courtroom. Okay. By the third day of the hearing, 10 inmate witnesses um, who had gone against the inmate code to never rat on a fellow inmate... Uh, had testified, and the inmates sitting on the other side of the trial were growing increasingly agitated. Um, they kind of started out the trial all right, but by day three, like, Brian Dodge refused to get back on the bus at Kin Kingston after a lunch break and had to be, like, physically carried back onto the bus to go back to the courtroom. Um... This started a brawl when the inmates arrived at the courthouse and they refused to enter the courtroom. 
The afternoon session was delayed that day for over an hour while the police and prison guards just like attempted to get the men to cooperate. They're like, come on, guys, we just got to get this done. Like, if you don't show up, the trial's still going to happen, and it's just going to be worse for you. Yeah, it was a shit show. Yeah, on the it fourth, sounds like it. Yeah. On the fourth day of the preliminary hearing, the 13 of them were ordered to stand trial for the murders of Brian Enser and Bertrand Robert. Eleven eyewitnesses had been called to testify for the Crown, and the defense attorneys for the inmates reluctantly conceded that there was sufficient evidence to go to trial. At the Duh. end of the hearing, the inmates' defense counsel requested the Crown Attorney's office supply them with a summary of evidence of witnesses that were not called to the preliminary hearing, but might be called to trial. So the defense counsel is asking for, like, what witnesses didn't you call during the prelim hearing that you are going to call or you might call during the trial that might have different evidence that we heard? Because they are entitled to any evidence that might be put forward during the trial mm -hmm. so that they can prepare a rebuttal or what have you. Of course. So Crown Counsel John Sampson reluctantly agrees to turn over all of these statements, but is very specific that defense counsel not disclose the names of any witnesses to their clients or anyone else because releasing these names could seriously endanger the lives of these witnesses who are ratting on their fellow inmates. Why can't they redact the names and just show the evidence or the, like, interview with the person? You know what, Katie? I don't know. That's a great idea. But they didn't. John Sampson sent a copy of the evidence to all 13 defense lawyers on July 26, 1971, and two weeks later, it was discovered that somebody was posing as a lawyer for one of the defendants and had obtained a copy of the evidence and leaked it to the public. <gasps> oh, my lanta. So See? all of this information Redact. Redact. made its way to all of the local penitentiaries. So this put the government in a little bit of a sticky situation. They now needed to protect like 40-something inmate eyewitnesses that were willing to give evidence at the murder trial, um, but they now could not be considered safe in a federal penitentiary. Mm -hmm. um, provincial institutions at this point weren't really prepared to accommodate potentially dangerous federal inmates. Some of the inmates had already been put in the Quinty Regional Detention Center in Napanee. However, those inmates were already complaining about their treatment there. Um, they complained that they lacked privileges like recreation, radio, TV. Um, I feel like even if the treatment wasn't that bad, I think in any group setting when someone is so negative going into something, you find the negative in it. And 100%. that's not just inmates. That's like any group of people. If you're all collectively bitching and negative... You go into it and you're like, this sucks. Yeah. Nope. I 100% agree. And I imagine that they probably were in solitary confinement and didn't have a lot of privileges because they were oh, trying sure. to, they were trying to probably keep it like under wraps a little bit. Like we're also like triaging this whole situation as more information is coming out. Like, where do we put people? How do we handle this? What are we doing? Like, when I imagine they're not like announcing on a bullhorn in the provincial no. institution that there's a bunch of these federal inmates. Guess there. what, like, everybody? Right, so they're knock, trying to knock, keep it under wraps a little bit. No, you're not allowed to, like, go run around the rec yard with everyone else. 
Right? And, like, what if something like this leak does happen and you're out in the yard and it, like, it just takes two seconds for someone to be, like, sitting, having an interview or meeting a family member, having a visitation, and they say something and they take it back to the yard. It's just, it is that fast. So the inmates that were unhappy with their treatment at the regional detention center, they, like, wrote a letter to the government and sent it to them saying that they were not being treated well. Um, And they felt like they were already risking their lives to testify for the prosecution. And now the government had kind of like somehow put them in a worse position than they felt they were in before. So three days after this letter was written, one of the six inmates in Quinty was moved out and admitted to Kingston's psychiatric hospital after a suicide attempt. By this point, the inmate's letter had reached the press, and so the Solicitor General reached out to the Minister of Correctional Services for the province in Ontario to request additional accommodations in several provincial institutions. The federal government agreed to pay each facility a rental fee and per diem rate for each inmate that they were willing to take. Um, And so an arrangement of a $1 per day rental fee and $19.90 per diem cost per inmate was agreed upon, as well as reimbursement to the province for any costs associated with the transfer of inmates from one jail to another. So they're like, keep your receipts, we'll cover it. Essentially, they were like, please just find places for these people and we will pay you. We got you. Which, again, it's what we understand is when there's a housing crisis, just throw money at it and it seems to just not get fixed. It's another fucking band-aid. Yeah. On October 28th, 1971, the trial against the 13 inmates accused of murdering Brian Enser and Bertrand Robert began in front of the late Judge William J. Henderson. A number of pretrial motions had been dismissed, such as a request for separate trials by the defense lawyers and a change of venue request, um, because they were all being tried together. Mm -hmm. All 13 inmates pled not guilty to two counts of capital murder, and this trial attracted a ton of media attention, and the (laughs) inmates were dubbed the Kingston 13. Okay. We love a quippy headline. (laughs) Yeah. As a society. I was going to say, as a society, we love a quippy headline. I'm not certain that I love oh, a yeah, quippy no, headline. Not but... Name them the dumpster divers. I don't care. Right. Yeah. In the end, all 13 accused were either convicted or pleaded guilty to charges ranging up to manslaughter. Witnesses in the trial included Bernard Fleming, who was the assistant deputy warden of Kingston Penn. He described finding the body of Brian Enser uh, with the Kingston detectives saying, quote, his head was smashed in. We had to turn him over to make identification. I knew he was dead. He testified that Brian had a big bulge in the middle of his forehead. His trousers were torn and he had a large gash in his leg three or four inches deep. He also described seeing Bertrand Robert being carried out from the prison on a stretcher saying, quote, his face was covered in blood. It was just a mess. I couldn't recognize him. Something about like a really big goose egg just bothers me because it's like, you know, they've been hit with something so hard. Yeah. By November 22nd, 1971, the preliminary hearing and the trial had been going on for almost four weeks. So like 
witnesses were testifying to the conduct that they had seen going on during the circle attack when the inmates were tied to the radiator like yeah it's a long four, ass trial already four weeks of witness testimony and yeah. on this day four weeks in 12 of the accused plead guilty to one count of manslaughter and the 13th which is brian bocage pleads guilty to assault causing bodily harm those are much lower sentences so for charges from a pos- capital murder to manslaughter yeah Mm-hmm. Um, Justice Henderson instructed the jury to consider the pleas and said the accused should be treated as a whole, not individually. He also stated he felt justice would be met by accepting these pleas. Now, there's a ton of controversy over this decision, and I'm actually just going to open up the book and read to you the quotes by the judge that were the most controversial um because now that we've all heard the story now he's kind of saying like oh that'll be good enough he basically went on to, to describe that he basically told the jury they must consider the charged emotional atmosphere that existed in kingston pen at the time Brian Enser and Bertrand Robert were tied in the circle. Um, He said, quote, given the conditions, I doubt if an ordinary man would have had his stability and control. He went on to to say that the very sight of the undesirables had generated an emotional and irrational response from other inmates, but he saw no indication from the evidence that they had informed the intent to kill. So you're saying a mob mentality should always just be given a free pass because it's hard to look at something you hate and have a group of people and energy he encouraging you He is literally be- saying he didn't believe anybody had the informed intent to kill and they were running around screaming to kill them. Yeah, over and over. As he well then- as to torture them, hurt them. He then asked the jury not to consider how the accused had acted, but how a reasonable man might have acted and told the jury that murder might be reduced to manslaughter if the accused did the killing in the heat of passion or provocation. He said the conditions in the prison were such that they took away the intent of the accused to commit murder or even presumed that their actions would lead to death. He concluded, Who gave this guy his job? Oh, let me tell you, the public was pissed about this. He concluded, con- quote, combined with the acceptance of the crown, I have no hesitation in putting these pleas before you. I feel that the ends of justice will be met by accepting these pleas. The jury deliberated for less than two hours and accepted these guilty pleas for manslaughter and the one for... Um, Assault causing bodily harm. I'm so disappointed that this judge used his big words and his knowledge of the court system to really navigate the jurors and what to decide. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. really disappointing. Yeah. Um, So the sentences, I'm not going to read every single like inmate and their sentences out. I have the information here, but... 
Essentially, the sentences ranged from 21 months to 11 years in total. Or no, sorry, 15 years. Dave Shepley got the highest sentence with 15 years concurrent. He was serving a 12-year sentence for armed robbery that started in 1970. Um, And the smallest sentence was... Brian Bocage, who pleaded guilty to assault causing bodily harm with respect to Brian Enser, and he received 21 months concurrent and was already serving an eight-year sentence for manslaughter. Some of these sentences were given concurrently and some were given consecutively, which I found interesting. So obviously just whoever was representing the person, because the lawyers have a lot of like if you get a good lawyer, your sent your your plea and your sentence will probably be less or yeah less than somebody who yeah, maybe they doesn't have a better as good deal. Of a lawyer. Um, so yeah, some of them were concurrent, some of them were consecutive, but yeah, the the highest sentence for the, these two murders was fifteen years. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about that, but. It's hard because I think I'd have to sit back and really think about how I feel about them already being in there for X amount of years plus that. I think I need to look at the big picture, but I still don't. Reading this book and knowing what I know about this case, I just have such a hard time with saying that none of them had the intent to kill. No, that's when bullshit. it's so obvious that that's what they were trying to do and like mob mentality or not like that doesn't take it. away your actions no doesn't take away the fact that you also, did intend in that moment to kill somebody i think they need to stop saying in a normal man or a normal situation because this isn't a normal situation they're right. in prison right like it's just not the same when they're like what would the average man do well, how many people in there have undiagnosed mental health issues are really struggling with the idea of being in prison? Like, that setup is tough. Right. Like, there's so many other contributing factors that I don't think it's also fair just to be like, what would a normal man do? Yeah, I mean, these guilty pleas and the sentences were not well received by the public. Um, bullshit. The public thought that it was I'm not well receiving it right outrageous. now. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I didn't put this part in originally but i'm gonna include it one of the inmates was actually accused of drinking brian enser's blood an inmate testified that and i'm not trying to sound silly but as it was gushing out of his leg this man like had a cup and was filling it up drank it and then did some big chant um Okay. The judge during sentencing literally said to this specific inmate, you'll be a good boy from now on. And the inmate replied, yes. So, yeah, the public just felt that this entire trial was a huge miscarriage of justice. He's treating Um, them like they're children. Like, oh, no, they've learned their lesson. You'll be a good boy now, won't you? It's fucked up. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's so fucked up. Yeah, it's pretty wild. In the year after the riot, Kingston Penn underwent numerous repairs and renovations. The cost of the damage was estimated to be over a million dollars. The government reversed its decision to close Kingston Penn and it became transformed into a new reception center where inmates would spend six weeks to be classified before being transferred to other institutions. Um, To where they get the sorting hat. Exactly. Obviously, we know that it opened up 
to be a fully functioning institution yeah. later than that. But yeah, it was eventually reopened at first as a like classification center where you would spend your first six weeks um, before being transferred to kind of like your more permanent home. I know it sounds silly, but that is definitely like it's kind of what we do with animal rescue. You bring yep. in an animal, you observe them for a while, you see where the best fit for their qualifications are or their behavior or their mental health or their status or their health, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that that's how that became. It became like kind of like a triage center. Yeah. It's interesting. After the 71 riot, the federal government created its first ever national commission of inquiry into a penitentiary riot. Ian Scott, who was the future Ontario Attorney General, was the commission counselor, a counsel, sorry, and the commission was chaired by Justice J.W. Swackhammer. It became known oh. mm-hmm, it became known as the Swackhammer Inquiry, and it is considered the first ever independent investigation into a penitentiary riot in Canada. These incidents Incidents were traditionally handled internally by the warden of the institution no. and, <laughs> and the regional administrators, but I think we all know how that went and how it would have gone. Like internal police investigations. We've had this conversation. Yeah, so that's how riots were investigated prior to Kingston, though. They were done internally by the warden and by the regional administrators um but due to the intense media coverage of this riot and just how big and destructive it was um there was huge pressure for an external review to be done so that is why this was created the swackhammer inquiry made several findings and the penitentiary service was found to be partially responsible for the riot by failing to respond to legitimate complaints from prisoners The commission interviewed 349 penitentiary staff and 211 inmates who had been in Kingston at the time of the riot. The 63-page document outlined how Kingston Pen was, quote, hopelessly outdated and inadequate for the purposes for which it was being used in 1971. The commission determined the riot was not an isolated incident, but part of an escalating series of violent institutional disturbances designed to bring public attention to long-standing grievances that had not been adequately dealt with by the penitentiary service. The report also found... Yeah, the report also found, which I think we can all agree to, that the relationship between the guards and the inmates was exceedingly poor, um, with a very, very much toxic. us versus them mentality. Yes. Yes. The commission put forth 52 recommendations designed to improve the operation of federal penitentiaries while providing rehabilitation to offenders. One of the main recommendations was an independent avenue of recourse for inmate grievances that would address the issues as opposed to having complaints. Jesus. Sorry. As opposed to having complaints dealt with internally by the penitentiary administration. HR. So this is when the Correctional Investigator's Office is created. Oh, that sounds badass. Yeah. So the, the Correctional Investigator's Office, which is operational today, was created as a result of the commission's findings and lawyer Inger Hansen was appointed as the first correctional investigator on June 1st, 1973. Cool. The 
office looks at and investigates a variety of offender complaints, including making sure inmates have access to physical and mental health care, deaths in custody, conditions of confinement, indigenous issues, and women in prison. Today, a staff of 30 investigates approximately 6,000 complaints a year. I know. Wow. The investigator today still worries that the Correctional Service of Canada takes too long to respond to offender issues and complaints, stating it takes about a year on average or nine months if it's a serious complaint for, like, anything to come of it, which is a long time. Yeah, it is a long time. In June of 1971, there was a warden's conference held in Ottawa that included wardens from all federal prisons across Canada, as well as senior penitentiary service management. Changes were discussed, and years later, one of the changes saw the Canadian Penitentiary Service and National Parole Service merge to become what we now know as Correctional Service Canada. (laughs) From there... A lot of new programs were developed in correctional services. Um, And while it did take some time, like, reform didn't happen overnight. Um, We know that there's still... still... I was going to say, there's (laughs) still a lot of work to be done with respect to conditions. Everything, every element that we talked about. Penitentiaries, programming, I mean... I told Katie that I didn't go into everything, but the book does really talk about some of the regression in that in that way that took place during the Harper government. Um, the Harper government really came in, and and they are a lot tougher on crime. I think tough on crime was like literally their slogan. They introduced a lot of mandatory minimums. They took away a lot of rehabilitative programming for inmates. Um, and so... A lot of this stuff does depend on what government is in office at the time. Like, they have a lot of pull in terms of what programs they're going to fund. Like, all of those programs in institutions, in penitentiaries that are geared towards rehabilitation and all that kind of stuff, skills building, it's all funded by the federal government. They have to pay for it. And if they don't see value in it, they're going to pull back funding on that. Um, Sorry, that was a long tangent, but... No, but it's totally true. All that to say that I could probably write another four-part episode on the different changes that have happened. I already told her no, don't worry. In federal penitentiaries and the service over, you know, the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years since this But as you mentioned, we touch on all these, a lot of these little things in every case. So we have slowly been like building that story already. Yeah. However, this riot and like, the changes that took place after it are really credited with being a big push to reform and get changes made in correctional services, even if they aren't perfect or it took a long time. Yeah. Um, You got to start somewhere. Yeah. But that is really all I have. I have one final quote um, of the riot. Billy Knight said, quote, I've been in a riot. This was a torture chamber. Kingston was a living, breathing hellhole. I chose to destroy it before it could destroy me. And Billy Knight eventually died in a Saskatchewan prison at the age of 35. Well, he was so young still. He was young. But that's it. That's my finale. Hot damn. Part four of the Kingston Penitentiary Riot. I'm sure there's so many things. I mean, I know that there's so many things that, you know, I could have included, not included, but... 
that's well, maybe really this what I is going to be the case we redo in a year or redo <laughs> in the sense that we just add to it. I'm literally never redoing this. <laughs> no, just hard pass. Absolutely not. No, like 36 pages of notes later. No, 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 no. This was probably 16,000 to 20,000 words of writing. Oi. So wow, you're back in doing, university. I won't be doing this one again, but I had a really good time writing this. It's tragic. It was a huge reformer and corrections. It it changed so many things. Um, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I learned so much, and I'm sure everybody else did. It was beautifully covered. Thank you so much to everybody who has listened to this series and messaged us that you really liked this style of series. Um, I'll keep that in mind. These ones are kind of like a lot to bite off and chew, but um, anytime there's kind of like a bigger story like this, I'm I'm happy to think about covering it. So I do think the case that we've talked about that we probably just won't cover. I think should we ever decide to cover that, it's going to be like... Three, we will four cover episodes. it and it will be three or four parts. It will sure. be three or four because we'll there's it a together. lot to break down. Well, that one will yeah. be not fun but like interesting because it'll be a lot. Um, also, yeah, I would actually here. like people's advice or opinion because I know that you and I have talked about an American case that we'd both like to cover. So we'd love to hear if you guys would like us to hop over the border again for maybe a case because yeah. Tamala Horsford is still a case that I want to cover really bad. Same. And it just, it's, oh, it, like we said, it lives rent-free. What it the lives, fuck happened? It definitely lives rent-free. There's too um, many questions. One day. So. Yeah. But thank you for being here. Um, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you don't already, we would love a follow on socials. I would love to hit 2,000 followers on Instagram and we're getting Woo! close. So at Podcast by Proxy on Instagram. Um, even if you don't want to see my post, just like follow us and mute me, honestly. <laughs> Um, we don't post that often, but if you're like a lover of the show and you want to support me in my journey for 2000 Instagram followers, but you don't want to see any posts from us, follow us and mute us. Honestly, I won't be, I won't be offended. It's better than no follow. Um, but we really don't post that much. So you won't feel like we're spamming you. Um, and if you loved this series, please tell us in a rating in a review on apple Podcasts. like if you want to email me and be like i loved this series don't go to apple Podcasts and tell me about it there um because it's going to be so helpful for the show and for other people who are like hmm this is a podcast i've never listened to before is it worth it people go to the reviews and they want to see what you have to say so Mm -hmm. um if you want to give us praise we will always accept it in the form of an apple podcast review yeah, or Spotify stars. Anything you want to do to rate us is always helpful. Anything. Um, Anything. But that's it. That's it for me. Have the most excellent week, and we will see you next week for our regular scheduled programming again. Yay. Bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. <gasps> okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fuck me.